Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedarico and Daniel Coca. Welcome, Mo, to the podcast. Adapia, Daniel, thank you for having me on today. It's, a, it's, a, it's an honor to, to be on your show and to be here with you today. Yeah, we're, we're really looking forward to what we know will be a really in-depth conversation. And, you know, to, to quote Bill and Ted, to hear from your most excellent insights on economics. So why don't we start by having you introduce yourself and high rise capital and, and what you're up to. Yeah, thank you. So my name is Mobina. I've, I founded my company high rise capital. This was really the culmination of, of a path that I've been on for a number of years that started first of all, with being a passive investor. And then from there, you know, really kind of getting into and becoming more immersed in the commercial real estate space and also within syndicated commercial uh, real estate opportunities. And so while I was on that path, I, I saw a lot of other uh, people who were at a place where I used to be, where they didn't quite understand, you know, that there were opportunities available to them to invest in commercial real estate, invest in alternative assets. Uh, a lot of people are still kind of caught up in, you know, thinking that, you know, paper assets and, and Wall Street is how, you know, they need to basically build a portfolio and rely upon, you know, going into retirement. And, you know, I had this uh, kind of epiphany that started, you know, uh, after the last global financial crisis, you know, a little over 10 years ago, back in 2008, 2009, and led me down this path to kind of reevaluate and to kind of better understand, you know, you know, the financial system, and then also to better understand, you know, the opportunities that are out there. And, you know, those people that are that separate themselves as, you know, the the wealthy and the the 1% or whatever you want to call them or classify them, what are they doing? You know, because they're not doing a lot of the same things that the average person is being told to do or that's been indoctrinated to do. So it led me down that path and I founded High Rise Capital to bring these same investment opportunities to to other investors as well too and also to provide education and to help them in understanding the things that you know, uh, financial education and financial kind of consciousness that a lot of people don't have. So, yeah, yeah, and actually, that's that's exactly why you know we wanted to to have you on the podcast today. Is is that educational piece? You wrote an ebook, and it is so well done and so rich and so full of great insights. Tell us a little bit about the the ebook. Yeah, thank you. The the ebook actually, I spent a few months writing it. it. It was something that when I first started out, I was planning on maybe just writing about 10, 12 pages. And as I started writing it, I, I kept thinking about all the things that I wish that I knew when I first, you know, started, you know, investing as a passive investor in commercial real estate. But even before that, just better being a better investor, because I think People talk about, oh, I want to be a real estate investor, but in order to be a good real estate investor, I think you just have to be a good investor all around, you know? And so the ebook, you know, got, gets into a lot of details, but it provides a really solid, you know, foundation and what are syndications, what's commercial real estate, what are the benefits, what are the advantages, you know, um, what are the asset classes out there, what are the investment strategies, you know, the, the macroeconomic chapter, which I know we're going to focus in on today was one that I was particularly proud about because it allowed me to kind of, you know, help to explain things from, you know, a perspective of, you know, what are the long-term trends? Why are things happening the way they are? You know, as investors and especially real estate investors, you know, when we invest, we, we take positions that last for multiple years. And when we do that, we have to understand what the trends are because if we're not investing with the trend, we could potentially get, get caught in an investment that, you know, may not pan out. And of course, you know, these are investments, you know, there, they are, there's risk involved, but, you know, we mitigate and we reduce quite a bit of that risk, you know, when we're, when we understand the trends and we invest alongside what those, those trends are. 
Yeah, the one thing I've always found really interesting when we're talking to you know new investors joining our network is people like to joke about this you know, mythical crystal ball, right? Nobody has it. No one knows what the future is going to look like. But when I hear people say that, I actually think almost the exact opposite, which is there's this whole kind of baseline of economic data that you know, is really providing kind of clear and consistent conclusions over the course of time. And we do kind of have the crystal ball, except people just either don't want to look at it or don't know how to look at it. And so it'd be interesting to hear, you know, from you just thoughts that you have for the everyday investor. How can they do their own economic research? What are the things they should really get comfortable with that can help them, you know, look at things on a forward looking basis? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it's one that involves homework. Unfortunately, it involves education. And it's, an, it's one that really involves having to, you know, take control and to be proactive of one's kind of investment strategy and, and so forth. It's unfortunately, you know, and I say unfortunately, but I don't, it's not, I don't say it in a bad way. It's in a way in which people have to basically take control and empower themselves. You know, it's easy when we relinquish that control to a fund manager or to an ETF and we say, okay, fine, I just want to get the market return. But, you know, inherently, you're not even going to get the market return when you take, when you take into consideration the fees and commissions and all that. You're going to get something below the market. And so in order to become fully empowered, people have to kind of, you know, really take some time to understand, you know, first of all, what they don't know and what you, and, that, and those are the blind spots. And that's, those are the ones that I encountered, you know, years ago. You know, you don't know what you don't know, right? And, and the blind spots are the hardest ones to deal with because when you start reading and when you start understanding how the financial system works, how money works, when you start to understand real estate and how real estate transactions take place, when you start to understand taxes, taxes are a big component and a big benefit to why we invest in real estate. Asset protection as well, too, is another component. And so there's a, there's a lot to really learn and understand. But on the other hand, it's not overwhelming at all either. It's just because it's something new. It's something that people have to take the time. And, you know, for me, it was about like, you know, I've always kind of had this mentality of being a lifelong learner. And I think for anyone who wants to really become empowered, they have to kind of take that same philosophy and that same mindset and to say that, you know, I'm going to learn as much as I possibly can. And it's not like you have to understand everything inside and out. It's that you just have to have this general foundation. And, you know, there are a lot of people out there like Robert Kiyosaki talks about this all the time. If you've ever read any of his books where he talks about, you know, the lack of financial education out there, they don't teach you a lot of this stuff in schools. Uh, you know, I went through two bachelor's degrees and a master's degree. And a lot of what I know now, I had to learn on my own. I didn't learn any of it in school. So it really takes a lot of kind of like understanding and, and, and going down that path. And I, and I know I kind of spoke in generalities uh, without getting into specifics and, and we can cover that if you like, but you know, it's uh, it, it really all starts with mindset. I really believe. And when people are ready to learn and they're going to be proactive, this whole world will then appear that they never knew existed. Right. So when you go down the path of, I need to learn something, you start maybe with one resource and then it'll take you to the next one based on what you, you know, what you need to find or find out. Do you have like two or three starting places for somebody that, that might not know where to start? Yeah. You know, there's some, there's some great books out there, for example, and that's, this is how I kind of started a few years back. Like if I'm able to give specific recommendations, you know, like there's some great books, for example, that are written by like the, the Rich Dad Advisors team, you know, like Ken Malcolroy, Tom Wheelwright, Garrett Sutton, they've written books on real estate, on taxation, on asset protection, and they give a really good foundation. And in fact, these are books that I have on my shelf that I read years ago. And, and they, and they kind of give you that, that foundation and they kind of piece together a lot of the stuff because real estate doesn't really just exist on its own. You have to understand the other components as well, too. And I think from there, depending on what, you know, the specific investor has in mind, they can then go through and they can find other topics and other areas of discussion that they find kind of, you know, more meaningful or, or, or that their intellectual curiosity kind of, you know, leads them to. But those are like good starting points. And I know there's probably a lot of other books, too, that people would recommend. 
there's one as well too that's a great one i'm kind of drawing a blank but i think it's the uh, the millionaire investor or the real the million or the millionaire real estate investor next door or something like that which mm-hmm. is also a great resource as well too right yeah it comes to mind as you're speaking there there are so many resources like your ebook is a resource it's like a compilation of multiple multiple different things so let's actually dive into the macroeconomics because that is something that I know, especially for me more and more becomes so important as we have so much uncertainty and, you know, obviously the past is never a predictor of the future, but there are past trends and there are cycles and there are things that have happened that predict, you know, to some degree the future. And then you have behavior, which is a lot of times today kind of going in the opposite direction of what has been in the past. So you have these like multiple different forces at work, but would love to kind of hear your thoughts, generally speaking, on the current macroeconomic situation and how one would go about viewing it today to feel comfortable in making investments, because we all believe, obviously, that it's still a good time to make investments, especially in in the asset classes that, that we both look at, which is multifamily. Yes, yes. I think the number one thing that people have to understand is interest rates. The entire world runs on where interest rates are and where they're headed. And I think that's that's the basis for everything that drives all markets, real estate, uh, the Forex markets, stocks, commodities, everything's all driven by interest rates and interest rate differentials uh, between currents, between you know various currencies, the, the US and the Euro, the or the 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 U.S. dollar and the pound and you know everything's all based off of rate interest rates and interest rate differentials and I think in order when you when you see the world like that then you kind of then see okay well then who controls interest rates you know interest rates are controlled by by central banks and central banks around the world you know the Bank of Japan you know the Federal Reserve in the U.S. the the European Central Bank. And so then you look at where rates are and where rates are going. You know, we've been on this trajectory for hundreds of years now where rates are continuing to go lower and lower and lower. And, you know, when you look at where it's been going trajectory-wise over the last few centuries, and then you look more closely at where we've even gone, you know, just in the last, like, you know, 15 to 20 years, interest rates continue to go lower. And, you know, when I wrote my ebook, you know, at the end of last year, I had said that, you know, when the next recession comes about, that we could expect to see even lower rates, perhaps even negative interest rates in the U.S. Now, we haven't hit negative rates in the U.S. yet. You know, the, the Federal Reserve is still targeting between, you know, zero and a, and a quarter percent. But, you know, uh, Trump has made comments and, and a number of other, you know, pretty influential people have made comments about wanting to potentially see negative rates. And, Someone will ask, well, why, why are they pushing rates so low? Well, because they're, they're trying to, one, disincentivize people to save. And two, they're also trying to stimulate because if people aren't saving, then what are they going to be doing with their capital and their money? They're going to be spending it, right? And so they're, they're really trying to push people to spend and consume. You know, our economy is 70% based on consumption. But I kind of pose the question to people sometimes, like, is that the way it should be, though? You know, you know, savings and investment is a much better alternative, I would say, than constantly consuming and driving yourself into debt. And so when you look at where interest rates are going, it's causing this really search for yield globally, you know, and especially with that yield is, you know, investors, especially deep pocketed investors and, and those institutions and those individuals that have access to this cheap money that's out there. And, you know, what are they doing with it? They don't keep their money in the bank and continue to, you know, lose their purchasing power. They're going to want to go out and find income producing assets, especially like ones in commercial real estate, like the ones we invest in. And also that provide other benefits too, like an inflation hedge, because, you know, we've already seen trillions of dollars injected into the system just in the last, you know, several months, which is unheard of. And this money is going to cause further asset appreciation. You see the stock market hitting an all-time high. And yeah, there may be a short-term correction. There may be some other things taking place within commercial real estate. But you know, these are all short-term. You know, you know, over the long term, we're going to see 
more and more capital come in for this for this yield and also the fact that real estate is a tangible asset and it'll provide that 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 hedge as well too against inflation it may not be a problem now and by problem i mean like you know in the single digits or in the low single digits but you know at some point when you have trillions of dollars being injected into a system one by monetary policy by the federal reserve and central banks and then you also have fiscal policy in terms of governments worldwide essentially you know giving money and sending money you know freely to people by way of enhanced you know uh, unemployment benefits and other programs that are being done and you know some people may say that that is necessary that's warranted based on what's happened and you know regardless of what someone's views are on that issue the real takeaway is what effect is that going to have on you know assets and asset prices and and where are you going to get yield where are people going to get yield from you know yeah we when we have this conversation about you know where are investors finding yield it ultimately leads to this discussion of well that's why the stock market despite all of this economic uncertainty you know is still moving in a positive direction because there are very few places that investors have to park their money and generate yield given where where interest rates are and so I think you mentioned this earlier, the difference between, you know, the 1% and the rest of the world and, and where they're deploying their capital, real estate, you know, in theory becomes cheaper capital for a buyer of a new property as interest rates decrease. And then you see oftentimes what follows is this offset of de- decreasing cap rates as sellers then realize, hey, investors are getting more bang for their buck. And so I can get, you know, more, more money. And then you have this more aggressive capital that's out there hunting for deals. Like you mentioned, the folks who are borrowing at, you know, the absolutely lowest rates. And all of a sudden you have this environment where you've got 15, 20 bidders for a deal and, you know, winner's curse if you end up uh, ultimately acquiring a property. And so my question, you know, in this current interest rate environment, how should investors be thinking about, you know, what's, what's a good investment today? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, in my ebook, I, I covered, you know, not just the interest rates, but I also covered, you know, a lot of other phenomena taking place as well, too. You know, for example, you know, what are the long term trends, you know, in our nation, for example, with underemployment and, and stagnant wage growth, the loss of purchasing power, you know, that people are experiencing, the heavy debt loads that people are also experiencing as well. You know, a lot of students coming out of college with what I call, you know, they have they have a mortgage without the home, you know, because their student loan burden is so high. And these are all unfortunate circumstances. And, you know, when you take all this in culmination together, you know, you, you see also, you combine that also with decreasing home ownership as well and where things are headed in that direction. And, you know, for example, my ebook focuses on, you know, multifamily investments, but, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these bullish indicators and all of these long-term trends you know, bode well for other asset classes as well, too. For example, like mobile home parks, you know, the supply of mobile home parks, you know, decreases every single year. You know, senior living is another one that's kind of correlated or closely related to, you know, what's going on in multifamily. You know, we have an aging population and it's, so it's important to keep track of the demographics and where the demographics are with an aging population and the fact that, you know, a lot of these elderly, you know, are going to need advanced care with memory care and skilled nursing. And, you know, those are other asset classes as well that, you know, investors, you know, would want to look at. But as far as like making investment decisions, it's, it's, it's important that I think investors understand that they have a number of choices out there. And although multifamily is one that, you know, fulfills a basic human need, you know, we all need shelter and that's never going to go away. You know, building a portfolio that has other asset classes within commercial real estate you know, can also provide some benefit of diversification, you know, across, you know, different asset classes and also geographically as well, too, and also trying to mitigate any risk, you know, and you're right, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people out there that are, they're fiercely bidding up the prices of these assets. And I think over the longer term, you're going to see even more cap rate compression than we've even seen up to this point. I think we do have some challenges kind of like in the, in the near to midterm, for example, you know, with these enhanced benefits that have been given out to people, you know, when those enhanced benefits run out, how are people going to be able to make their rental obligations? And I, I do expect, I could be wrong, but I do expect that there should be, when if all that eventually plays out, that there will be some type of repricing that takes place within commercial real estate, specifically within multifamily, I would say, 
you know, we're already seeing that, that repricing take place, for example, like in hospitality and retail and office. And so I think there'll be some nice discounted opportunities in the next six to 12, maybe 18 months down the road. It, it really all depends on, you know, what goes on with, you know, these enhanced benefits. Not to go off on a, on a, on a tangent, but, you know, I read a, a pretty interesting research report by the Aspen Institute, and maybe this, we can reference this in your show notes as well. And they basically uh, put together a study and they've actually shown that and they've actually shown that when the enhanced benefits run out, that there could be as many as uh, 20 million Americans that are evicted. And I, I think that's a really, even if it's only half that number, you know, that is, that is huge. And I think it's something that people should kind of like consider and, and bear in mind, especially with the markets that they're looking to invest in. You know, in that same report from Aspen, in the Aspen Institute, they actually had uh, of that 20 million, up to 4 million of those evictions may take place in California alone. And so we've been in a pretty hot market in California. I know that there's even big been demand for single family homes as well, too, fairly recently. But, you know, I think over the, the short and midterm, there could be a little bit more of a, of a slight correction, I would say, in multifamily, perhaps even in single family homes. But again, for for most passive investors, we're investing for the long term. Does that really affect their decision. Unless you're looking at maybe buying multifamily in, in some of these states like uh, New York and California that have, you know, that may potentially have a lot of evictions playing out. I think that people looking at a lot of these like markets with the job growth and also the growth in population, you know, areas like Arizona and other places where people are, are going to, a lot of the places in the South, West and the Southeast, you know, that are experiencing phenomenal growth. I think there's a lot of great opportunities, especially when an opportunity is pretty well vetted and you have, you know, perhaps below market rents, properties being run inefficiently. And so there's a lot of upside at that point. And a lot of this kind of short to midterm probably is, is for the most part, really irrelevant. It just all depends on what types of decisions investors are looking at making and, and the markets that they're looking at and the asset classes too. Yeah, it's also cheaper rents, right? You know, everything else being equal. When you look at a, a New York or an LA, you know, you're you're looking at at a minimum twenty five hundred, three thousand dollars a month for for an apartment, right? But if you head to a to a Phoenix or you know a, a market like that, you may have rents that are a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars a month. And if you think about affordability for those types of properties, it doesn't require you to make a hundred thousand dollars a year. You know, it's about forty thousand dollars a year that you need to make in order to afford to live in that apartment. And, and that's really been the central thesis behind workforce housing for a long time: is hey, there's a coming recession, and when it hits, you know, folks in Class A apartments are no longer going to be able to afford where they live, particularly in major cities, and then, you know, they'll drop down into these class B. Now, COVID shook things up a little bit because you have a lot of blue-collar workers who are now in that, you know, unemployed uh, category. And so there's been this, you know, lingering question once these federal unemployment benefits run out, you know, what happens to those folks? And as we look back on, you know, or chat with the sponsors that we invest with and the data that we have, to date, we've seen collections, you know, have historically been, you know, uh, consistent with where or collections have been, uh, where they have been historically. And so, you know, there's definitely an open question about what, you know, what the world's going to look like going forward. And then I think the, the follow-up to that, of course, is, well, you know, who should ultimately be stuck at the end of the day, you know, holding the bag for, you know, kind of COVID and its impact, right? Should it be investors in real estate? Should it be owners? Should it be the government? Should it be lenders? Like everyone has a, an interest in this and everyone wants things to move forward in a way that makes sense because the reality is lenders do not want to take over a ton of properties in the next few years. They're not equipped to do that. A default is not a positive thing for most lenders. And so I'd be interested to get you know, your thoughts on how does this all shake out you know, over the, the next six to 12 months? Wow, that's a that's a tough one. <laughs> I I do expect in some markets that there will be a repricing for sure. You know, I I, I can't see any way around it, especially in, in markets where I think there's not, you know, historically been or from a recent point of view, let's say when I say historically, like you know, job growth and population growth, you know, in, in states where you know we have kind of a 
an anti-business, high regulatory barrier, high taxation. You know, these are markets I think that are going to to suffer, you know, even more. But, you know, I could be wrong. But, you know, when you look at also the the migration trends, when you look at one-way U-Haul rentals, I mean, just look at where they're going and look at the pricing, you know, I I know that there's some there's a number of people out there that kind of track this information and from time to time, you know, they publish their stuff and you can see that, you know, for you know, the cost for a one-way U-Haul rental out of California is like four to five times, you know, coming back into California for over the same distance, you know, and when you look at it from that, that point of view, you have to wonder like, okay, well, do I want to be investing in a market where, where there's a net loss of people, you know, and you also look at some of these areas in California where, you know, and I've, and I've seen some of these properties even just in the last, you know, uh, month or two, really high-end, you know, coastal areas, one and two bedrooms from high 4000s to $6,000 a month. These are one or two bedroom units. Uh, and they're also in neighborhoods, you know, that they are desirable. But you also have to kind of wonder like, well, how much more is that sustainable, uh, just from an affordability standpoint. So when you talk about markets with, with lower rents and lower, you know, price points of $1,000, you know, give or take, you know, I would feel much more comfortable investing in markets like that, especially when I'm investing in a in multifamily or an asset class that I know is going to be in demand and the demand fundamentals have gotten even better as a result of COVID. You know, you know, I think they've solidified the fact that when you look at the money printing that's been going on and when you look at the trajectory where rates are more than likely, I would think, are eventually going to hit negative in, in the United States at some point. And even if they don't, you know, even if they just hover like we're just barely above, you know, zero where they are now, you know, that still is going to compress cap rates moving forward because you know, just think of all these trillions of dollars that are out there and foreign investors and foreign capital, you know, they've always seen the United States as a, as a safe haven. They've always seen, you know, commercial real estate and real estate in general in the United States as something very desirable to have. And that trend has not changed at all. Maybe how much they allocate in specific asset classes and geographic markets has changed for sure. But I don't think that that trend in itself is going to change. I just read, you know, that in Manhattan, they have an all-time high in vacancies now. I mean, this is an all-time high. I mean, people are just fleeing uh, Manhattan. And then this is also part of another trend, too, that maybe we can briefly touch upon, which is, you know, kind of like the flight to suburbs. You know, mm-hmm. that's been going on for a number of years now. So, you know, there's kind of, you know, there was this trend that was kind of leading more into kind of like more centralized, you know, business districts, more into kind of like downtown areas, if you want to call them that. And now that's reversed and it's reversed and it reversed a number of years ago. And so there's kind of been, you know, people going more into the suburbs. And I think as a result of COVID and people wanting to perhaps have more distance, you know, away from other people, that that is going to continue to accelerate, if anything. Uh, And it's kind of interesting to also look at maybe like office too, because office office development and and office uh, spaces have actually been increasing in the suburbs. So I'm not sure if people are following or if that, which one is kind of leading the other, or maybe they're just kind of moving both in tandem. But it's kind of interesting to track that, you know, employers are, are sensing and also see that trend too. And so they're also setting up shop in the suburbs. And so uh, office space in, in suburban areas are growing quite a bit. Yeah. So, so Mo, it's interesting because I, I was actually reading a Brookings report from 2019 because it was making this point that COVID has simply accelerated trends that were already in motion, period, like in everything that we're dealing with. And the migration out of the major metropolitan areas was already happening as far back as like when they started tracking in this report 2004. And so from 2004 until 2017, it was like the the top cities that were losing, you know, migrants, let's say, were Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Miami, like those were the top four from 2004 till 2017. So, you know, we've seen with the boom in technology companies through that time too, that as prices in these major cities have been pushed up, they've also been migrating their businesses to these other markets in America that have been booming for years. So there is, there's so much data out there and research that shows, you know, it's not that COVID made something happen. COVID is just highlighting things that were already in play. And then a really interesting number that I was reading about regarding New York, Manhattan, 
is, I want to say it's like they've lost 450,000 people was the number. And that number is, is basically the equivalent of all of the people that had been gained since the 50s. And they've lost that same amount of people, almost half a million in six months that it took 50, 20, almost 70 years to to gain in. And then on the, on the other hand of this, right, because everything, there's nothing is, you know, one directional. You have Amazon who just decided to buy the Lord and Taylor building that WeWork had bought. So they bought it off WeWork and they're going to add 3,500 jobs with an opening date of this new Amazon New York headquarters 2023. So it like at the same time as Amazon is doing this really future oriented, they've also been one of the companies that set up hubs all over the country. So I feel like in the work that we're all doing, and even for an investor listening, it's good to understand the overall global economic trends. Like we're talking about sovereign wealth and money coming to the US because even if it seems like a bit of a circus right now, it's still in a lot of investors' eyes, the safest bet globally. Yeah. So it's kind of like in a rock and a hard place, you're still in the US. So that's one thing. And then, and then you have so many shifts in behavior and preferences. And I loved what you said in the beginning, which is, do we need to have 70% of GDP based on consumerism? Maybe not. Maybe this is a really good time to change that. So anyway, I said a lot, but just, just to say like the statistics are there, the reports are there, the trends are not new. They're just highlighted. Yeah, totally. When you look at even in other asset classes too, like in office, you know, there's been this trend, you know, to reduce footprints, you know, employers want to reduce their, their corporate footprints. You know, and so that's given way to like, you know, one, people working from home, uh, either on a full-time or part-time basis, and also people, or sorry, businesses setting up, you know, co-working spaces. And that also is is even transitioned into multifamily and co-living spaces as well, too, which is starting to grow. And so these are all trends that we have to kind of keep in mind and look at the rise of e-commerce, you know, look what that's done to the retail space and look at the rise of of, of e-commerce and that's what that's done for the industrial asset class, you know, with warehousing and cold storage and, you know, all these other things, you know, last minute delivery centers, you know, and so that that's given rise to industrial. So, you know, although retail has been adversely affected, that's helped to grow the industrial asset class. And, you know, although, you know, office has, you know, been hurting, you know, at least in some of the major metropolitan areas. And, I, and that's what I would expect to continue. But, you know, that it's going to take years to really see how this all plays out. But that trend has also been one that's been going on for quite a number of years. And, you know, employers just wanted to reduce their overhead. You know, why have such a such a large office footprint with a lot of these leases are, are really long term leases as well, too. And, you know, and I, you know, it's funny, just kind of on a side note, like, you know, I, I recently bought a, a, you know, a webcam and a microphone and it they're hard to come by, you know, because most people are now you know, they've set up shop from home. They're now interfacing with clients and, and, you know, and perhaps their peers, you know, via Zoom and whatever platform they want to use. But I mean, you can just even see with the fact that, you know, it's hard to even find like a, like a decent quality webcam out there without being price gouged, you know, or a microphone. And so that in itself tells you that more people are, you know, utilizing these things because they're not interfacing, you know, person to person. And I think a lot of that is going on because people need it as a necessity because of employment and, and the job that they do. Right. And just to, I want to touch upon another point too, as well, you know, a lot of people talk, cause this kind of refers, this kind of circles back with the whole like in foreign investment capital. And, you know, and I got caught up in kind of like this flawed thinking for a while. And, and I'm sure that there may be some people listening to this as well, that maybe you could appreciate or kind of identify you know, there's a lot that's made out of, you know, uh, the U.S. dollar crashing, you know, that somehow or another our dollar is going to be worthless and it's going to zero and whatnot. I think people need to identi- understand the fact that the way things really work is that if someone's going to say that something is going to crash and burn, there has to be some alternative, right? There has to be some other currency out there that let's say the, the world will come to rely on as a, as a reserve currency and that 
oil and, and other goods would be transacted, you know, in, in some, in some uh, standardized currency. And people that keep predicting, you know, the, the, the dollar is going to crash. And I've heard this for probably 20 years or more. And I'm, and I'm sure that talk's been around even further than that. They need to understand that there is no other alternative out there right now. And maybe at some point there will be. I'm not saying that the dollar will be the king, you know, forever. But until there is an alternative, and, and even that will take perhaps quite a number of years for it to be fully solidified and for nations and for global economies and commerce to, to adjust, you know, the dollar is basically, you know, the, the nicest house and probably a very ugly neighborhood. And people need to understand that because foreign investors do, you know, they understand that. And so that's why they see the U.S. as a safe haven. And you also have to understand, too, that if, even if you believe that the dollar is depreciating, which and you're losing purchasing power, which there's no doubt about that, we all are. And if you believe that the, the CPI and the, the rate of inflation that the government puts out, if you believe that, which I personally don't, I think the inflation rate at least is almost twice as much, if not even higher. And there's some great platforms out there to actually track, you know, what the real rate of inflation is based on historical measurements. Shadow stats is one of them, for example. And even if you think that they, we're losing our purchasing power, and what are you going to do about that? Again, more reason to own tangible assets like real estate and perhaps even have maybe a little bit of precious metals too as, a, as an insurance policy against all your dollar-denominated assets. But, you know, real estate is the best way really to hedge against all that, right? You know, and especially when you take into consideration the cap rate compression that we're going to see and all this foreign and even domestic, you know, investor capital that's going to want to find yield somewhere. So, yeah, Mo, it, I really I'm so glad you touched on shadow stats because I remember seeing that about what like let's call it actual inflation is. And they're, they're actually on like a kind of a side note, but sites like shadow stats and there are other sources of information that are more truth in everything than just what's, you know, kind of put out by, let's say, like governmental agencies. So it's kind of shocking because I've seen that chart and it looks more like inflation's 10% and has been for quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, I think right? if you ask the average person, sorry, if you, if you ask the average person inherently, you know, when, when, when you ask them to consider, you know, especially if they have a family and they have kids, let's say, going to college. And when you take into consideration higher education, healthcare, would you take into consideration housing, especially if you're in some of these markets like, you know, California, New York, you know, and you look at the cost of housing. Mm -hmm. And if someone were to tell you that, oh, well, the, the CPI index is only about like 3% or so, I think that's just, I think that's just really <laughs> off. Let's put it that way. And Shadow Stats is a good way because people don't understand that the metric has actually changed a number of times over the years. And they also have things that they can do, like, for example, I think one of them is called like substitution, where they can actually remove something out of that index and replace it with something else. And for example, I remember reading one time where, you know, one of those substitutions, like if the cost of beef goes up too high, then they replace it with, with you know, much chicken, right? Because they say, well, if the cost of beef goes up too high, people aren't going to buy it anyway. They're going to go buy chicken. So then we throw, we throw the price of chicken in there. And, and I'm just giving a crude example, but, you know, when you really want to have a historic measurement of, you know, what the CPI is and not just, and not just that, but even our purchasing power over the long run, you know, when you look at statistics and, you know, when you consider our purchasing power and where it's been, where it used to be in the fifties and sixties, you know, in the fifties, you'd have just a one head of household that was working and could support an entire family. Now, a lot of households have, you know, let's say the husband and the wife both working and they actually have less purchasing power now than, than the single uh, individual working, you know, decades ago. And of course, that then talks, that, that can talk, ties in when we were speaking previously about, you know, the stagnant wage growth. You know, people say, oh, wages are growing, wages are growing. But at the end of the day, it's not really that. It's really purchasing power. What are you able to get for what you're actually making, you know? And I think that's how people should be thinking about it. And Shadow Stats is a, is a great resource that actually allows you to track that and you can actually see. And again, that's another way that people should be investing because if you think that trend is going to continue, because I don't see it changing anytime soon, how are you going to invest accordingly to take advantage of that? Right. Right. Yeah. And it, it really makes me think about how a lot of people, you know, like myself included and you and Dan and, and all of our investors have two jobs, maybe more, have a side gig and are getting passive income 
from like from investments like we can't actually sustainably rely on just income anymore and um, one of the things throughout covid is that you know regardless of where you are in the sort of food chain of how much you're making if you're like workforce or 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 like white collar everyone's been affected and shaken a little bit because of all this this uncertainty so let's talk about how we invest and like why we invest and something that i really resonate with with your philosophy is this idea of meaningful returns because yes you know we're we're trying to make money but it's not because we're greedy like there's a necessity to it more than ever and but that also comes with a sense of meaning as to why we're doing it so can you talk a little bit about that yeah yeah that's a that's thank you for bringing that up it's a it's one that i really really hold true and it's something that i really you know i'm passionate about you know back in the day when i was a let's say a, a traditional asset investor and you know i i always felt disconnected from everything that was going on you know you can own stock in apple and and tesla and some of these high flying technology stocks you know but do you honestly feel like you get meaning out of that and some people perhaps do and i i, I shouldn't uh, perhaps maybe pose it in that way but i'm just speaking about how i look at it you know housing multifamily you know we're providing a, a, a we're fulfilling a basic human need for shelter right and you know it's something that it's an asset that we can we can see we can touch it we can see it as an investor if you if you're interested you can even drive by and take a look at it as often as you like just to know that it's still there and that it's still you know providing utility to people and you know personally i I've, I've been one who lived in i've lived in apartments for for most of my life you know growing up you know we 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 bounced around quite a while and lived in you know many apartments and so i kind of have this it kind of resonates with me about this whole meaningful returns and it's something tangible it's something that we're not disconnected from and you know it's something that we're we're providing such a great benefit to people and you know i don't know if a lot of people honestly get any meaning out of the other things that they invest in maybe they do maybe for some people if it's just you know literally what's on the the bottom line of your brokerage statement then and, and that's all that there is then then that's fine that personally has never really been me though i never really got kind of like i never felt complete probably is a is a good way of saying that you know and investing in like real estate investing in like you know assets that provide you know a benefit not just in terms of shelter but a need to society you know how do we function without even industrial assets for example you know everyone wants to have uh something that they can buy online and have delivered as soon as possible and what facilitates that warehouses the location of warehouses all this logistical stuff has to all come together and it provides a great societal need because people want to have things you know when they need it you know they can't go shopping or if they're basically that there are restrictions in terms of their travel or whatever it may be or if people just prefer you know buying online now they they love you know whatever website they go to to do that you know industrial provides that need and so senior living another one as well too with memory care and skilled nursing a lot of these asset classes that you know provide meaning and provide uh, you know something that's really in demand especially for elderly people and especially as our demographics you know are moving in a way where our population is getting older and older especially within that age group of like 70 and above so anyway that's that that kind of that meaningful returns is is really something that I know resonates with you as well too it's uh, it's it's something that really is important and i think a lot of other people kind of feel the same way as well and 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 when you when you start investing in passive investments and when you start like you said having multiple streams of income you know that is a way of diversifying as well too you know diversifying your wealth diversifying where your wealth is coming from and when people start to kind of round out and build this kind of base of passive income and then of course when you combine it with you know the tax benefits too and passive losses and before you know it you know there are people like you know that Robert Kiyosaki they constantly talk about you know the professional investor and and shooting for you know uh, having passive income and paying very little if any taxes that is that is something that's written into the internal revenue code and that's something that's been there for for decades and decades from the very beginning you know because when you provide a societal need when you facilitate something like real estate to others which is one of the few areas that government has not gotten involved in when you think about it so in essence to me it almost seems like the government's already said 
we're going to incentivize people to get involved in real estate. We're going to provide you benefits like depreciation and cost segregation and 1031 exchanges and all these other benefits to facilitate, you know, private industry to get involved in real estate. Because I guess and that, the way I see it is they've already acknowledged the fact that they're probably not very good at it. So they're going to stay out of it. And so that's, that allows, you know, the rest of us to kind of fill that void and that need that society needs. So. Yeah. So it's, I love what you were saying about like some of like the asset classes and it made me think about some of the sponsors that we work with. We're really proud to work with the sponsors that we work with, especially in the senior living space. And we started working with a new sponsor this year that's doing affordable housing and their approach to it is really important, right? Because even for us as a company, as people, as our, for our firm is we, you know, we don't want to invest with slumlords, like we're looking to invest with people who put people first. And so that that's also really, really important when you're like who you're investing with is that that alignment of philosophies and how they're putting their money to work. Because yes, we're making returns and that's great, but it shouldn't be, let's say, at the expense of someone, especially not in these categories, they really need to be taken care of. And it almost is like a responsibility that falls on us as, you know, investors, whether you're the GP or even an LP, like you said, to each his own. But I know that that, you know, that's definitely um, important to us as well. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I don't think it's a matter of having to pick one or the other, like, do I want to do good for society? Or do I want to, you know, build my wealth um, or diversify where my income is coming from? No, we can have it all. We really can, you know, it's a, I think this, this mentality that you have to pick one or the other, you know, I think is flawed. I think it just, and and if someone's posed, you know, with having to make a decision like that, then I think that's just not the right investment opportunity, honestly. And, you know, when you talk about slumlords, like I've lived in apartments that were run like that. So I know what it's like on the receiving end. And, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of communities, you know, where people come in and, and will buy a, a, a multifamily property and you know they can totally remake what i kind of look at that property is almost like a micro community right you add some security fencing you add maybe some security cameras uh fresh coat of paint you maybe add other types of amenities or, or small amenities you know and all of a sudden it's like you know people feel a much more pride of ownership um, or rentership i guess is probably a better way of saying it in that micro community and then what happens? And then they raise rents 50 to $75, very minimal amount, let's say, maybe not even that much. And then next thing you know, there's a property across the street that does the same thing. And then the one adjacent to that does the same thing. I've, I've been in communities where it started with just maybe like one or two properties that did, you know, basic things like this to improve the lives of the, of the tenants. And then before you know it, you know, the entire street, the level, the, the level of the entire street has been brought up. And then so all these people in that neighborhood, you know, I'm sure they feel a better, more pride in where they live. They feel more secure and, you know, they feel like it's a much better place to live. I've been to apartment communities, you know, where the laundry rooms don't even work. And, you know, imagine, imagine how much time it takes to take your laundry and to go to a coin operated place and how much of your time, you know, and people are so strapped for time as it is, how much is it time to really take just to do something as washing clothes? And, you know, these are all basic things. And so we can totally make a huge difference in the lives of people. And uh, again, like I said, it's, it's not a matter of picking because I don't think it ever should boil down to that. And I just think that, you know, these win-win opportunities, there's tons of them out there. They're all over the place. It's just a matter of aligning things properly to take advantage of it. I think that's a really important point too, because it's not just about behaving in a way that you know makes you feel good about where you put your money. That type of activity also spurs a bunch of additional economic activity. And over the course of the medium long term, you're actually creating you know an ecosystem that you know, is much uh, more in line with your economic goals. And then you also have the hey, like we feel good about this you know approach. And you know, as Adapia mentioned, the group that we work with, you know, in addition to kind of coming in and buying affordable housing units that you know, are some of the worst on the south side of Chicago, they spend a lot of money renovating the, these properties so that they look substantially better than any other affordable housing property that that you would walk into. And that's really the first time that that tenant is going to get to live in a building 
that looks and feels like the one that they're now living in because those options don't, you know, don't exist. And then they do things like they have a, you know, a tech platform where they connect all of the local businesses with all of their tenants. And of course, you know, this is sprawling across the South side of Chicago. And exactly like you said, over the course of time, they really build up this neighborhood feel and everyone is boosting everyone up. And in addition to feeling really good about helping to revive a community, we're also creating a ton of economic value as well. And so, you know, we really see those types of things as, as win-win, it seems like you do as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, there's, and like I said, there's tons of these opportunities out there. And, you know, it's just a matter of, like I said, just making sure that everything aligns properly to take advantage of it, you know. And sometimes it means being the first one on the street or in a neighborhood to do this, you know. Yeah. But then once, once that happens, you know, then someone else, another landowner, another property owner would see and do the same thing. And it just has a domino effect. And now you saw what was just at a micro community level or a specific, maybe just one multifamily, you know, complex. And then now it's multiple in an area. And all of a sudden, you know, that builds up and that, that, that really elevates the whole, you know, community as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. And actually it was, it makes me think about what you said in the very beginning and which is what I think most people understand about real estate is it's, it's a long game. Like when you make those moves, if you are the first, when you're investing in real estate, it is a longer term endeavor. And so that, you know, it kind of brings that all kind of ties it back in to why that's important to have a long-term, you know, to have that long-term view. So the, the, the last thing that I wanted to talk about or ask you about actually is, you know, what does wealth mean to you? Um, you know, we talk about like the show is based on building a healthy financial foundation and there's multiple aspects to that. And so, you know, what does wealth mean to you? Yeah, that's a, that's a very deep question. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, there's, you know, the financial wealth, there's the health wealth, there's, there's a lot of components that come into that. That's that also the, the meaningful returns that we talked about and, and being, feeling fulfilled and complete that you've done something. Ultimately, you know, when we're gone, I mean, what do we leave behind really? It's just a legacy. I mean, maybe the pharaohs believed otherwise. And so they wanted to be buried with all their stuff. Right. But you know, I, I don't believe it works that way. And so all you can leave behind is a legacy and, you know, the, the, whatever trail that you've blazed for others, you know, or along even or alongside with other people. And, you know, health is something that I that I hold really um, dear. You know, my my family and I, we're, we're really conscious about, you know, exercise and, you know, making sure that, you know, we're, we're constantly like, you know, eating well you know, and that transcends to a lot of things that, you know, a lot of people may kind of take for granted, you know, and that's really ultimately, you know, their physical health, right? You know, finan- being financially free or, or getting to the point where they're financially free is great and all, but, you know, there's also that, that longevity component of it as well, too. If you're financially free or you have the means to help out others and to do the things that, that make you happy and that, improve the lives of those around you and the people that you love. That's great and all. But in order to do that, you, you have to be in good health, right? And you have to be able to like, you know, sustain a good long uh, life and, and have a good, you know, quality of life too, that goes along with that. And uh, it's, it's something that I, I think is really important. And, you know, uh, don't know how much of it you want to, you want to cover, but, you know, I, I do spend a lot of time, you know, my family and I, in terms of like what we eat, you know, we, we eat organic, you know, we always, whenever possible, we try and buy directly, directly from the farmers, you know, and that is kind of our way of, of knowing where our food comes from, where it's sourced from. And at the same time, also to build these, you know, communities or these like decentralized systems, as I also like to term it. And, and this also kind of ties into what we've talked about too, with the whole syndication kind of set up. And one of the, one of the things that I really enjoy about it is, you know, we're all investing with each other. We're, you know, Main Street investing in Main Street, if you want to call it. And yeah. so we have the ability not just to invest and to improve the lives of other people, but we're investing in each other's deals and in each other's opportunities. And we don't have to invest and go through these big financial institutions and be at the whims of how the stock market is trading and how disconnected it may be from the economy right now. And so, you know, when you buy directly from a farmer, you know, someone who grows your food 
or who raises the animals that you may eat if you're a meat eater, you know, this also ties into kind of like that decentralized kind of philosophy. And when we invest in syndications and syndicated opportunities, you know, these are, these are decentralized systems that we're, that we're mm-hmm. taking part in. And that's mm-hmm. kind of another fascination. And what really got me, you know, going down this track years ago as well is, you know, that we invest in each other's deals. And at the same time, you know, we're building, each, we're, we're building up, you know, each other as well. Yeah. And I, I do. And I, I love doing the same thing, you know, at the, uh, at the community and micro community level. And it's kind of, kind of when you look at like who's been doing well recently, it's the big box stores, right? You know, and a lot of that's been out of necessity, but I don't know if that really is at least my personal choice. I would rather give my money to someone who I know um, is growing my food and who actually is raising the animals that I eat than to go. And even if I'm buying, let's say, grass-fed or organically grown, you know, meats and fruits and vegetables, I always have this connection to the people that actually have interfaced and, you know, worked the land, let's say. Right. And again, that kind of falls into like a, that meaningful, you know, connection that you're having again with where your, where your food is coming from and what you're eating. And, and so it all kind of ties in. It's all really under the same theme, you know, of, of like, I'm connected. I'm connected to where the source is. I'm connected to, you know, where it's coming from and I'm connected to the individual and, and you can always go do a farm tour as well. You know, I've been to tours where you can actually go and you actually see, you know, where the strawberries come from that you go and buy every Saturday. You see the fields and you see the people who work the land. And again, to me, that's meaningful, right? There's a connection there. Yeah. I remember picking strawberries when I was a kid. My, my parents, it would take a strawberry picking. I remember the taste of the strawberries. I haven't had strawberries like that unless I buy them from the farmer's market. So, you know, what you're saying too, just to kind of synthesize it and wrap it up, you said a few things that I think are really important keywords, which is the connection and community. And by interacting with each other not to be like a click, but when you find a group of people or when you're, you know, you find your suppliers or you find your partners, you, you create this community, you create these connections and they are more meaningful. Like at, at Alpha, we, we don't call ourselves a syndication platform. We call ourselves an investor um, uh, member network. Our investors are our members. They are our community and we extend not just our deals to them, but our network to them. And, and that's a really important thing because I think my belief is that at the end of the day, bottom line is, do you trust me? Have I earned your trust? Um, especially because as we know in real estate, you know, everything's a projection, especially with equity. And so we're always doing our best. And that level of trust comes with, especially in those times and those moments where maybe a distribution isn't coming through um, because the sponsor has to keep it back, you know, to keep up cash reserves or whatever, what have you, right? And, and just having a blind pool of investors isn't conducive to being able to have the level of communication that allows them to feel comfortable and allows us to feel like we're, we're doing a good job because nobody likes to be yelled at. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so it kind of comes back as a long-winded way of saying this idea of connection and community and direct connection and meaning um, is built off of these relationships in, in all areas of life. So I love, you know, I really appreciate what you were saying. I totally agree with everything you said. You said beautifully. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Mo, thank you so much for joining us today. This um, was a fabulous conversation. I loved all the different things that that we talked about. And we will include in the show notes for our listeners, your ebook and some of the sources that we cited so that people can dive into their own research, at least to start to get a different sense or understanding of how to do research, where to look for it. Um, And your ebook is a great starting point for that too. So thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks. Well, that was, uh, that was really great. I think this is, this will be a little bit unique for our investors and in that we're taking a deeper dive into some of these, you know, I guess I shouldn't say a deeper dive, but a dive into, you know, some of these economic concepts, which I think people want to learn, but they just don't really know where to start. And so I think this will be really good, you know, kind of material for the folks in our network. So thanks a ton for, for taking the time. Yeah. yeah, no, thank you guys. It was great. And thank you for taking the time to really like you know, go through the ebook and, you know, really, you guys really did your homework. Trust me, I've done several of these already. <laughs> you know, this was definitely by far kind of the most in depth and, you know, 
not to use the word meaningful again, but I mean, it was very meaningful in, in a lot of ways. And it, it's, uh, it's a testament to the amount of time that you guys spent even just preparing, you know, like I told you, I've done a few of these and literally it's just like, we talk for a couple of minutes and then they just want to go record. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. really, do we not want to at least put a basic outline together? Like, you know, have some talking points. And so I, I think uh, definitely it, I can tell based on the, the level of homework you guys do that your your listeners are definitely got to be more sophisticated than some of the other ones. You know, so thank you for having me on. It was a, it was an honor being on your show, and I I really thank you, Adipia and Daniel as well. So thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode, and especially. We welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.